Hi everyone, welcome back to the show. I'm so excited that you decided to tune in today. Today's episode might be a little different and that is because my laptop crashed and burned over the weekend. Now, fun story, I bought this laptop that I'm currently using to record this podcast on about two or three years ago at one of those Black Friday deals. It was really cheap and at the time I didn't have a podcasting and YouTube hobby. And over the last week or so, I noticed that my laptop was getting slower and slower and slower and finally it just refused to turn on. So Tech Rescue happened and they were able to retrieve most of my things. And luckily a lot of things that I have been doing are now online, but I don't think we're going to be able to get the usual sing-songy introduction. You just get me and I'm going to be talking about sleep today. But anyways, I wanted to give you the backstory that it's going to be time for a new laptop for this girl. Without further introduction, we are going to be talking about sleep and particularly why sleep is so disordered or becomes really a challenge for women starting around perimenopause and into the menopause transition. We're going to talk about why that physiology exists. Then we're going to talk about some really good sleep hygiene tips that you want to make sure that you are incorporating into your routine, even before you have any sort of disrupted sleep patterns. And then we're going to talk about some of the medications if you need to use, which I do recommend for sleep. All right. Sing songy introduction. Da, 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 da. All right. Back into the show. All right. Physiology of sleep. Now, there's lots of reasons that sleep becomes disordered in midlife. It's multifactorial. And while I surely think that women's fluctuating and changing hormone levels play a big role in that, the environment and the stressors that women face at midlife are unique and specifically challenging. And of course, anytime you have a life stressor, sleep can become less of a priority. The problem exists that once you develop poor sleeping patterns or a disrupted sleep pattern because you're trying to cope with your stress, this snowballs into months and then years and then decades of poor sleeping patterns. So if you know that that is you, or if you have good sleeping patterns, I really want you to take this episode to heart because I really think at the crux of us maintaining and thriving through midlife and beyond is to have good sleep. Now the goal for sleep is seven to nine hours of uninterrupted sleep. If you have a Fitbit or any other way of tracking, it's not a bad idea to start doing so, so that you can maybe get an idea of your sleeping patterns, maybe how many times you're waking up. And again, if you're experiencing anything like fatigue or sluggishness, weight gain, low motivation, or chronic conditions like high blood pressure or prediabetes, this could actually be stemming from a sleeping disorder or a poor sleeping pattern or essentially lack of sleep, lack of good sleep. So start by tracking. Studies have shown that women live the longest if they get between seven to nine hours of sleep and that our mortality or our lifespan goes down if we get less than that. And also if we get more than that, now you're probably thinking why, and that may have to do with comorbidities such as mood, mental health disorders, or depression where people are oversleeping. Uh, but certainly seven to nine hours is that gold standard that you want to achieve. 
Now, again, midlife is so stressful, and this is because of the sandwich effect. Women at midlife are usually sandwiched between not only children and parents, but also many other competing factors. So again, certainly the sandwich makes sense. If you have children or young children, or actually even adolescents or college children, they're going to give you big worries, especially as they're starting to grow and they have relationships or they have their own issues. And of course, certainly if you have aging parents on the opposite spectrum, they're going to worry you. Perhaps they're moving in with you. Perhaps you're now their primary caregiver. I've had several patients drive hours a day to see their parents, get them dinner, help clean their house and come back home only to do the same thing at their house and just have little to no time for themselves. Worrying about finances is really common around this time. Of course, women are often, if, if you're working, you're you know at the peak of your career or you're working your way up the ladder to the peak of your career. So there's lots of work stressors. You may have a partner that you're helping to take care of or that you're having relationship struggles with, pets, house, you know, cars, all these things, they really, really come together at midlife. You know, that perimenopause, menopause transition at the same time as our hormones are changing and all of this can truly, truly affect our sleep. So there's physiologic changes. And again, those are those swinging hormone levels that I've been alluding to. In perimenopause, the average age of perimenopause is 47, but leading up to perimenopause and in perimenopause, those estrogen levels are declining and your hormones, your sex hormones, your estrogen, testosterone, and then progesterone can really be swinging. And this can also cause some physiologic stress and sleep disruptions as well. So you really have this like two really huge whammies. So again, I really want to stress upon you that certainly if you develop a poor sleeping pattern or poor hygiene around this time, it might be years and then decades later when you realize it may have stemmed from midlife. And then there's also certainly chronic diseases which can interfere with sleep that do tend to uh, be diagnosed at midlife. Perhaps it's weight gain and then there's sleep apnea. Perhaps you do have sleep apnea and don't like wearing your CPAP machine because they're cumbersome. Other types of chronic diseases can certainly affect sleep. And then, you know, again, there's pets that climb into your bed. There's uh, partners that kick you. There's children that get in your bed. There's all these things that can really disrupt sleeping patterns at this time. So I hope I've made that clear. And now I kind of want to get into what I call like my sleep hygiene tips. A lot of these you might know, but if I got you listening to this episode, I want you to take a good listen through some of these because some might be new and it's always just good to hear it. Because trust me, I am just as much human as the next person. And certainly when I hear something from my doctor, it really does make me think and may help change my behavior into a habit that's healthier. My number one sleep hygiene tip is to remove the TV from your bedroom if you have one. Remove the TV. I know, I know. You may have had it there for years, or perhaps you think that it helps you fall asleep, or perhaps it's your partner who really wants it there. I've heard everything along that spectrum. But I want to talk about why removing the TV is so helpful. And if you don't have a TV in your bedroom, this is also really helpful to know for children or friends. The TV in the bedroom, well, you you lay in bed and you watch TV, right? I mean, it's wonderful. When I go to a hotel, I treat myself. It's like 
really, really fun to do that. And, you know, you get to lay down and it's relaxing and you can do all those kinds of things. But it teaches your brain that when you are in your bed, you hang out. When you're in your bed, you watch exciting movies. When you're in your bed, you talk or you do, etc. It's not a place where you sleep. And you really need to have your brain see your bed and think only about sleeping. Sleeping and sex. But let's be honest, majority of the time we're sleeping, right? So you want your bed to be for sleeping and sex only. I will not even do a bill in my bed. If I really want to sit on a bed, I'll even actually go to my guest bed. And I can't even believe I'm admitting that. But you really want to keep your bedroom bed for sleeping only. You don't want to associate it with another activity because then that can surely lead to disrupted sleep patterns. Similarly, a lot of research has been done on women who, you know, say that they use the lull of the TV to fall asleep. And it is clear that that leads to disruptions in sleep throughout the night, certainly sometimes disruptive dreams. Sometimes it may be affecting your partner more than you, but it almost certainly is affecting your sleep. And the time that it takes to fall asleep while you're listening to that lull, some of those words, we're also a little bit conscious of those while they're ongoing, and they may have some subconscious effects as well. Now, the this habit of removing the TV from your bedroom can be really challenging, especially, again, if you've been lulled to sleep by the TV, TV since childhood, or your partner simply won't uh, allow for the TV, TV to be removed. It can certainly be a challenge, but I really want you to think long and hard about the idea that we want your bed to be primarily for sleeping because you are going to associate that with sleep and that is going to help if you have poor sleeping patterns or poor habits. So that is my number one tip. Number two, develop a bedtime routine. This is really helpful for children. You know, if you've had children or if you know people that do, you know, there's kind of bath time and then there's changing into your jammies and changing your diaper. Well, hopefully you're doing the diaper and then the jammies. And then there's reading books and then there's singing a song. And a lot of those things are actually things that adults should definitely be doing as well. So a bedtime routine is really, really crucial. For me, I like to pick a time and turn off my phone and I plug my cell phone in across the bedroom. I also turn the alarm on that way across the bedroom so that I cannot get anxious about something or want to look up something random and have my phone right next to me. I know that's a hard habit to break as well, but I plug my cell phone in strategically a whole, you know, several feet away from me so that I cannot easily access it. Then I kind of go in my bathroom and I change into my pajamas. I take the vitamins and supplements or medications that I need. Sometimes I write in my journal. Sometimes I take a nice warm shower. Sometimes I read my Bible or I read whatever book I'm really into that time. And I'll chat with my husband and then I try to fall asleep. So could I improve it? Certainly. Is it perfect? No. Is that what I do? Absolutely. 100% every single night. No. But if you do have a routine that you like, you're more likely to kind of default to that. So some people do shower in the evening or take baths in the evening. Some people journal or have gratitude um, journals that they do in the evening, pray in the evening, whatever it is that helps you wind down without electronics, because you know what I'm going to get into next that can certainly be really, really nice. 
before I get into removing electronics, which you know I'm going to say, another thing that I want you to get in the habit of, so tip number three, is not having your worry period be at night. Now, this is a little bit like doing behavioral therapy on yourself. And the more you practice this, the better this will get. So when you have an intrusive thought about that meeting the next day, that presentation that you have to do, that talk you need to have with your your daughter, whatever it may be, you say to yourself, aha, you know what? I don't worry before bed. It's just a new thing that I'm doing. Have you ever solved any of your major life problems before bed or in the middle of the night? Every time I ask this, my patients shake their, shake their head. And it's no, you probably haven't. And so tell yourself, you know what? I don't worry at nighttime. I'm going to worry right when I wake up, right in the morning. In fact, this is actually a trick you can do. If you're an early morning riser, have a 10-minute worry period in the morning. Have your worry period. Think about it. Write things down. You're going to be much more able to actually solve those problems in the morning than you are in the evening. So the better you can get at this, at saying to yourself, I do not worry in the evenings. I do not worry before bed. The better you're actually going to get at it. And I like to do fun things with my brain at night. So uh, one trick I've had is I start to think about all the places that I've lived or all the people that I've known or wonder what has happened to an old friend, what I would say if we met at the airport, etc. Think of things that are really benign, things that are not going to make you really stay up and sweat. You know, don't think about all of those things because they're not going to help you sleep. And if you can't sleep, you're not going to deal with them very well the next day. So this one does take practice, but I know you can do it if you get better at it. So of course, tip number four is going to be reduce the screen time. And we all know this, but you know, I kind of have to say it. We actually believe that the TV is not that as bad or as noxious as that cell phone. No, not the TV in your bedroom, but the TV in your living room or family room, wherever you watch your TV. TV before bed can be okay. It can certainly be a little bit distracting if you're watching something funny. Uh, if you're watching something that's pretty, you know, easy to kind of wash down. That can actually be helpful, but it's the screen that's right in front of your face. The screen has a couple different issues than the TV does. First, it emits a blue light that can really harm our brain. It just really wires our brain. And not only is it the light, but it is also just the rapid amount of images that you see on your phone and the never-ending stream. Now, certainly Netflix was a game changer because, you know, back many, many years ago, you could only watch your one show and then it was over. And now you can stream and stream and stream. But this, the th- it's worse on your cell phone because you can click and click and click and click and there's no stopping point. There's literally no stopping point to your cell phone. And that is the big problem. Time will go by too fast. You will be overtired before you know it. And you, you can't detect when you're overtired. And, and that can be a big problem that being overtired can actually harm you from falling asleep. And I'll talk about that in a second. So you certainly want to put those cell phones and tablets and laptops away. And if you are watching a show, make sure it's not in your bedroom and make sure you have a stopping point for it and be as good with that as you can. Tip number five is going to be create the best sleeping environment that you can. So that's going to be blackout curtains, keep the room cold. That usually helps to keep us asleep. So actually, I usually recommend 65 degrees. And many of my patients say they keep it much colder than that. Uh, but it can be a struggle if there's a partner in your room who doesn't want the same temperature. 
But keep your room cold, keep it dark. You can do some white noise. Remember, all things that little kids also we do for them, do for yourself. (laughs) All right, so those are really my big sleep hygiene tips. Now I want to start talking about what things can you do to enhance your sleep and uh, starting with over-the-counters and supplements and then moving into prescription medications if you need. So the first thing I always say, I now sound like a broken record, is to journal and track. I I say that for almost everything, but if you are having a sleep problem, journal and track. Is it uh, every single night? Is it most nights? Is it trouble falling asleep? Is it trouble staying asleep? What is your sleep hygiene like? Really journal and track because it's going to identify for you gaps that you can improve on on your own if you are persistent. And the reason to be persistent is so much of sleep is our hygiene, is our habits, is our behaviors. And those do take time to not only identify and recognize the gaps, but to make changes. And if you can implement a lot of the changes that I have gone through in this episode, then certainly if you're still having problems, that's when you should most definitely talk to your healthcare provider. Now, in the meantime, there are definitely some safe things that you can try over the counter. The first and one of my favorite things, if you've listened to any of my other episodes before, is magnesium. I recommend magnesium oxide or magnesium citrate, either 250 up to 500 milligrams before bed. Magnesium has some great effects on being a little bit of a relaxant. It can help us fall asleep. It can aid in a gentle relief of constipation. In some women, it can reduce migraines or headache frequency. And so magnesium oxide is a wonderful place to start. It has many benefits and we tend to just be low in magnesium. If it causes diarrhea, which is of course the opposite of constipation, then just back down or perhaps 250 milligrams or 200 milligrams, which it typically comes in, is just too high of a dose for you. You can certainly also try melatonin. Melatonin, in my opinion, is best taken one or two hours before sleep so that it can slowly set in, whereas magnesium, I typically recommend when you're brushing your teeth right when you're heading to bed. Melatonin is definitely safe, and its main effect should be to see if it helps you with your sleep. You can certainly take magnesium and melatonin together, and that is certainly okay. In terms of over-the-counter sleeping aids that you might find, you know, if you look at the back, if you look at the bottle, it most likely either has one or two of those components in them. A lot of sleepy teas also might have those components in them. Things that I want you to avoid are the Benadryl family. So if you're putting yourself to sleep with either Benadryl or Tylenol PM, which is um, an antihistamine, those things can be not so great for you. First, they can be, they have side effects. Antihistamines can cause dry mouth, they can cause constipation, and they might cause some fogginess the next day. So certainly if you are relying on those, you know, we've all been there and you should talk to your doctor about that because there may be other options and that could lead to poor sleeping patterns as well. If you're sleeping in too long because those are making you too sleepy and then at night you're having that trouble falling back asleep again, you know, a bad cycle can ensue. So you do want to avoid those, you know, Tylenol PM, Benadryl medications. Now, what other medications are there that help with sleep? Well, 
you all know by now that I am a menopause expert. And so let's talk a little bit about the use of hormone therapy and uh, its role in midlife sleep. Now, in general, menopausal hormone therapy, which is an estrogen plus a progestin, if you have an intact uterus, is FDA approved for vasomotor symptoms and genitourinary syndrome of menopause, or i.e. vaginal atrophy or painful intercourse. And those are the things that is mainly improved for, as well as um, osteopenia or preventing fractures. Now, things that is not approved for, but clinically we do see help and improvement with is mood and sleeping patterns, sleeping disorders. So this is where the delicate art of menopause consulting comes into play. And certainly if these are awakenings from hot flashes or you're having hot flashes during the day and these are kind of in a constellation of what looks like to be perimenopause or menopausal symptoms, then sometimes there is a role for estrogen or estrogen plus progesterone if you have an intact uterus. Now, how does the estrogen necessarily work? Well, we're not entirely sure. In terms of the physiology of hot flashes, which many women are concurrently having at the time that they're having all these sleeping problems, you know, the physiology of hot flashes, as we know, is that the thermoregulatory zone in a woman's brain really decreases its threshold for ambient changes in temperature. So when that happens at night, if there's just even a gentle change in temperature for a partner breathing heavy, that can cause you to wake up. That can cause you to sweat and have a hot flash, or it could just be new onset of mood issues and what being wide awake at 2 a.m. And we're not sure if the underlying physiology of that is similar to what happens when you have a hot flash. But if those are concurrently occurring and your sleeping patterns or sleeping disorder issues seemingly came out of really nowhere, but really started when some other types of menopause or perimenopause symptoms started, then sometimes my women do opt for estrogen replacement therapy with a progesterone if they need it. Another thing that we find is that micronized natural progesterone can also, like that magnesium, cause a little bit of relaxation and induce some sleepiness. Progesterone is the hormone that rises before our periods or when that first trimester of pregnancy, when most commonly we may feel sluggish or tired. And so progesterone can have some beneficial effects in women, particularly who have trouble maybe falling asleep less so maybe staying asleep, but certainly sometimes I use a progesterone in my patients who don't need it. For example, they've had a hysterectomy and they just need estrogen for their hot flashes, but I might add a progesterone to see if it helps them with their sleep. I have actually even prescribed just progesterone for my patients in their midlife in perimenopause who are otherwise having seemingly normal cycles. And when we add that progesterone, wow, it really improves their sleep. And the doses I typically start with are 100 milligrams of micronized progesterone or 200 milligrams of micronized progesterone. So hormone therapy does have some role in sleep for women in midlife and at menopause. And because it's not FDA approved necessarily just for sleep, I typically also gauge a history for my patients of if they're also having concurrent hot flashes, osteopenia, uh, mood issues of menopause, um, those types of other symptoms to see if I can wrap this in a nice little package, a nice little bow. 
What else can you use if you are moving on into the medication realm and now we're stepping out of hormone therapy? Well, there are some medications that certainly can help with sleep in the SSRI or SNRI class. And those are just fancy ways of saying selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors or antidepressants. Now, it's not that we think you're de- secretly depressed and we're not telling you. It's just that at low doses, sometimes they can either have a relaxant effect or a calming effect, especially too if you're someone who gets into bed and you, quote, can't turn your brain off. That's that anxiety. That's kind of why I said train yourself that you don't worry when you climb into bed. But sometimes SSRIs or SNRIs at very low doses can help induce sleep. Some that I tend to start with are amitriptyline, 10 milligrams, or trazodone, 50 or 100 milligrams, or mirtazapine, 7.5 milligrams. And certainly, certainly, this is not direct medical advice and you should have a discussion with your doctor, of course. And if you are, as as many healthcare providers and clinicians listen to this podcast, if you are, those are tend to be my recommendations. Now, I do tend to avoid the medications in the benzodiazepine class, and specifically because it is my opinion that they will decrease your ability to establish for yourself your own good sleeping patterns and behaviors. Now, certainly I'm not talking about if you need an Ativan for that flight or if you're, you know, in the old days when we traveled and you were going someplace and it was just going to screw up your sleep completely and you need it once a year. Absolutely different story. What I worry about is patients developing a need to use these medications every night. So benzodiazepines are things like Ativan or Xanax are their, you know, brand names. And benzo-like substances are going to be your medications in the ambient type class. Now, the reason I avoid them, this is how I explain this to my patients, is that they work too good. What benzodiazepines do is they essentially cut off your central nervous system and they make you fall flat asleep. And some people say, well, that's what I need. I need sleep so bad. But when you have those types of medications, and they're very powerful, you can throw all your sleep hygiene tips right out the window, right? Because that medication is going to help you fall asleep. But when you do that, you are going to almost inevitably become addicted to that medication to help you fall asleep. So in my opinion, it's going to get you farther and farther and farther away from the goal of you being able to actually get yourself to sleep the best that you can. So I do tend to avoid those medications for that reason, as do many of my colleagues. Now, if you're already on those medications, I really do not mean this to pass judgment. Everyone is a little different. Everyone's history is a little different. Everyone's situation and environment are different. So I do want you to know, I have had many wonderful patients who do, at whatever reason, need them to sleep. And it is just my role to help guide my patients, explain why I don't necessarily prescribe them, and also to help them understand why potentially if they're interested in weaning down, it could be a hard road, but inevitably a good road for them. There's some studies that show these types of medications increase risks of dementia, and also certainly uh, things can happen to people in their sleep, such as sleepwalking or things that can be quite dangerous because these medications are very powerful. 
But again, there's no judgment. This is a judgment free zone. So I hope this gave you guys a little bit about a background on why sleeping is so difficult or becomes really difficult in midlife. And certainly if you had poor sleep prior to this, that can be in another risk factor. There's environmental stressors and there's hormonal changes and there is the development of chronic diseases. I hope I gave you guys a ton of really good sleep hygiene tips and that you start to incorporate some of those because I certainly know it will improve and you're going to foster good habits and behaviors going forward. It's going to get stronger every single day. And then I want to give you a brief overview without giving you direct medical advice of some of the medications and medical options that I use, both over-the-counter vitamins and supplements, as well as hormone therapy, and as well as other non-hormonal options. Certainly tracking and journaling is the crux of everything because it's going to help you and your healthcare provider really pin down where the poor sleeping behaviors may have started, what you can do to improve them on your own, and what type of medication is going to help you the best. And also if you need a sleep study, if there is concern that you are not sleeping well during the night, or if you have central sleep apnea or obstructive sleep apnea, certainly you can do those as well. There is a whole field of psychologists um, who do sleep cognitive behavioral therapy, and that certainly is another option. And I didn't get a chance to discuss that too much in this episode, but that's certainly something you can talk to your provider about. Well, thank you guys so much for listening in. Hey, if you have a chance to write a review or send in a star for the podcast, I so deeply thank you for that. It really is helping this podcast become one of the top women's health podcasts in the United States and actually across the globe. It's so fun to take a look at my statistics and see that people are listening to this in Ireland and Australia and the UK and it just, it's so cool to see. So thank you guys from wherever you are. So from Heather Hirsch sitting at her kitchen table in Boston, Massachusetts, I thank you guys so much for being part of the menopause warrior tribe. You are my people. I am here to help increase education and awareness around all things menopause and midlife. And don't forget, September is Menopause Awareness Month. And so do your very best to send this episode to a friend or a colleague or a relative who you think could really benefit from it. Thank you guys so much. And hopefully I'll be back next week with a brand new laptop. Until then, you guys have a wonderful rest of the day and evening. Bye.